Hello and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I am your host, Jack Greenstock, joined as always by an amazing panel. I'm going to kick it over first to Spartan Grown. Thanks, Jack. Good to see you again. Good to see everybody on the panel and, and chat, which I don't have pulled up yet. I'll have to do that. <laughs> um, I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word with no spaces. And um, if you don't have an Instagram, you can always shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com and I could try to help you with any of your organic or synthetic uh, growing needs, especially cannabis specific. <laughs> I know you grow other stuff as well, though, so it's good. But this yes, is the yep. cannabis grow show, so we'll try and keep it on that topic, obviously. I see Tyler's just jumping in, but I'll pass it over next to Dr. MJ. Hey, guys. I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I am excited. We're going to do some chat Q&A, I guess. So chatters, get your questions ready. And uh, yeah, excited for another show. Excited to have you back. And next up, Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates. Um, I am looking forward to the, the topic. We always have some good IPM questions, but if you don't, that's okay too. Always good stuff. We're happy to have you in case those questions pop up, which they typically do. I was thinking uh, IPM and lighting are some that we usually touch on, but haven't touched on recently. So maybe those will pop back up. But next up, we've got Brandon Russ. Welcome back, Brandon. What's going on, everybody? Brennan Rust here. Uh, glad to be here. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Rust, R-U-S-T dot Brandon. Also on Instagram, Bokashi Earthworks, just like the logo there. Um, and also www.bokashieearthworks.com. You can save 20% off right now with coupon code SMARTBUY all the way through Labor Day. So everything that's on the website is on sale. Humate fertilizers, microbes, seeds, amendments, the whole nine yards. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, if you haven't tried it and you want to try it, now is a really good time to save some money and get a great product. And you want to try it. You definitely have you back. And uh, next up, I'm going to pass it over to the American one. Hello, Jack panel and everyone in chat. I'm the American one. Um, the American one underscore with underscore your on the IG. And uh, yeah, I always love hanging out and talking about cannabis. Um, you might know that I did the Amy Aces. If you're interested, you get hit up amyaces.com and get a pack. And uh, yeah, let's see what uh, people have on their minds tonight. Always interesting to gauge the chat. One piece of advice for everybody who is here with us live, click on over to the live chat so you can see all the messages and other questions and make sure to tag at Cheap Home Grow. That way it'll light up with a little orange box and I'll more easily be able to highlight your question and copy it over to the Zoom chat. Even if we don't answer it right away, hang around because most likely I'll have copied like five or six questions over here into my Zoom chat that you guys can't see publicly. But I kind of go through them as the show goes along and we try to answer as many as possible. So uh, we really appreciate everybody showing up, hanging out. A lot of cheers going in the chat right now. Not too many questions rolling in just yet. But um, I figure I would maybe started off with a little bit of a lighting discussion because I've seen it going around. And uh, one of the comments a few months ago on one of our lighting shows that I linked to somebody recently who asked a question about far red versus uh, deep red and things like that, that I had remembered we talked about in there. I went back and I saw a comment that was talking about they believed that UV was beneficial to their plant. And I was kind of quoting Bruce Bugby, who's done a lot of lighting studies with like NASA and now working a lot with hemp uh, through his university. But he hasn't been able to really come across too much data or scientific evidence to prove that UV was beneficial. And that was kind of what I was just purporting on. But I also had mentioned that like Migro um, has gone to places where they're growing hemp with plasma 
which does have bits of UV in there. And uh, I think they're also experimenting with like UV bulbs as well. And they saw increases in terpenes and cannabinoids. So I don't think that it's conclusive. I do think it's uh, interesting information, but uh, it comes down to, is it worth implementing in your grow? And I think that's where a lot of us uh, went to the fact that no, but as I mentioned earlier, I think Brian 420 uh, PM, he has been commenting on, and I saw recently one of his posts mentioning he could see the UVB bulb and he believes the best buds are the closest to that bulb. And uh, he's just doing a little, you know, citizen science or what he called experimenting, not like a true experiment necessarily, but uh, getting good results with that. So I know it's a little bit of a older topic that we've maybe discussed quite a bit, but I'm curious if uh, any of you guys have thoughts on that. Cause I know a lot of people talk about that being one of the big things that is different between indoor and outdoor. And there's a whole lot of other things in the spectrum too, but I guess I'll pass yeah, it to I, Spartan and then uh, maybe doctor, you could jump in after that. Not convinced that I'm not convinced that it's UV that makes the difference in the outdoors. I think there's a billion other factors besides just UV and light that makes outdoors different than indoor. Um, and also from just a little bit of research that I've done <clears throat> into, I was just curious because in my life, when I lived in Mich, I lived most of my life in, in Michigan, but I did for a short period of time, two or three years, live in San Antonio, Texas, and I got burnt down there so much more quickly. Long story short, there's some places on this globe, a lot of places on this globe that uh, UV doesn't hit at all. And, and um, like in the northern parts of the world. So when people think they're going outside and getting vitamin D production, for example, they're not getting enough of that activation to even get that. So I'm not convinced that it's UV because of those reasons that it's not that it's consistently much more UV and outdoors in every situation. So um, that's my opinion at, at, as far as that goes, but is my opinion, is there a change? Is there a difference? I've heard too many, I know it's not scientific in, in double blind studies or anything, but I've heard too many people in my day, I guess, that have experimented with like reptile lights, things like that with good results. Now, as far as is it worth the extra electricity to how much more of an increase on those results you got, that I couldn't tell you, but I haven't been convinced enough to even try it, to be honest with you, in my own garden. So I'm pretty much at a wait and see attitude at this point. I don't like to adopt a bunch of new technologies uh, because it seems like this industry is moving so quickly, especially in lighting, that uh, I like to just kind of sit back and see and let it shake out and then try to make an educated guess. I think that's a good place to come from. And something you said about the UV that is interesting is even like your skin tone can impact how much vitamin D somebody gets, uh, depending on the latitude that they're at. Like somebody with my skin tone or darker, is going to have a little bit harder time than somebody with your skin tone because you're a little bit lighter. You can actually get more vitamin D in a shorter amount of time because your skin's not as resistant. Where somebody who's tan or darker skinned, they have to actually spend a little bit more time in the sun to get the same vitamin D production. But it is interesting that the further north you go in certain spots and even certain elevations, I think, um, it impacts the amount of UV that actually hits the ground. So uh, very interesting thought there. And I'll pass it next to you, Doc, because it sounded like you wanted to uh, jump in there. Yeah, I think that, you know, some of the best evidence that we have, some of the best scientific studies of this that, that we have, and I'm struggling to remember the, the authors of one that I read a few months ago, um, suggest that it, it's more harmful than beneficial, that it actually lowers cannabinoid production. Um, and I, I think that we kind of want to bring that up because you could hurt your crop. I mean, it's not just sort of a zero sum game and maybe you'll get some benefit, but you could potentially go the other way with it. So, you know, that we don't know dosage, 
we don't know timing um and we're not even sort of very dialed in on the, the potential pathways through which uh, a perceived benefit could happen i caution very strongly against using like you know all of the various forms of anecdotal evidence because that's exactly why we do science and why we're so careful when we do science is because anecdotal evidence can suggest patterns that aren't really there um you think you see things that that aren't really there and then the fact of the matter is unless we're really really careful and even sometimes when we're being really really careful with setting up sort of experimental designs there's so many opportunities for researcher bias um to affect the outcomes and and you know it's just there's especially in a qualitatively measured thing usually like you know quality of harvest um it's very subject to the the power of sort of impression and um you know your own ideas about what what should be happening there so I would say the best science we have is very inconclusive and some of it shows that adding UV during the flowering period can harm your crop and and lower your cannabinoid production so with that in mind you know use it cautiously eloquently put um I definitely agree with that sentiment as well um I, I feel like I'm, I'm reminded of like um, plant hormones, for example, you know, um, like the dose is super dependent on what the effects are going to be. You could put a little bit of one or a lot of another, but doesn't you might get the opposite effect if you put more of the same exactly. you know, compound. Right. And that's not intuitive. And I agree with you, especially about the anecdote. Um, you know, there's if you're not controlling for your own observational biases, then like you know there's a lot that could be wrong there and i just want to remind everyone that like like one of the very first things that any life that was coming out of the you know mother ocean long time ago um had to contend with this ultraviolet radiation and um you know even to this day still so like and and a lot of cannabinoids reliably decay um you know, by which I mean they will split in the uh, when they're exposed to ultraviolet radiation um, in a way that you can reliably predict, and they will change. Some some of these become different cannabinoids. Oh, actually, I think I only know examples where that is the case, but you know that can change the cannabinoids you get. Not only could it also potentially have damage. Uh, UV radiation is also not great for certain pests. Is what I like to be. A lot of times on the sort of ventral side of the leaves to kind of get away from some of that um, uh, radiation, but that's also true for the plant, you know. And um, yeah, they're not uh, they're not immune to everything. You could get tons of sublethal or sub damaging effects that are still uh, negative. And uh, yeah, so especially with that qualitative point that you're talking about, Dr. Coco, that was really well put. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to jump in and say, yeah, give a little uh, pushback. There is a study that shows that UVB increases THC in floral and leaf uh, pieces. It is from 1987, but if um, experiments are done with the scientific method, uh, time and date shouldn't matter all that much. Yeah, unless... it does matter. Technology matters. How yeah, right. our ability to control wavelengths has really improved since the mid 80s, like a, a lot in order to target specific wavelengths with LEDs. Right. The well, paper the, looks at outdoor. Using LEDs, but um, I say there's more than 
is like more anecdotal evidence where people that grow up high in the mountains uh, sometimes experience a lot more THC in the same exact area that like just lower, maybe, um, you know, in the same vicinity that's lower on the mountain. But um, I would say that anything that's in the sun, if you could put it on your plant, it's probably good. I don't really see an issue with that not being a truthful statement. I don't know, though. But uh, yeah, that's my kind. I don't add UVB, but um, and the thing I think the problem with LEDs is you can't really add UVB to a substantial amount with UVB light unless you're like using uh, quite a few diodes. But they yeah, I don't recommend using UV diodes yeah. for UVB light. You should use the right. fluorescent tube if you else. want to get UVB you, light. Right, if you want to use it. But yeah, I think more, more, uh, more study and experiment should be done. And I think if it does increase THC, that will take away some CBD or other compounds that the plant could have possibly put into that trichome, I think. I think that's kind of the way it works. So what, only... what dosage? How many micromoles of UVB light? I, I put the... Um, I put the thing, the, the uh, paper in the chat, and yeah, um, it does have the parameters, but it's, I'm sure it's not a UVB. It was from 1987. I mean, uh, LED, I'm sure it's from 1987, so. Right. They're just, so they're not as able to, to target. That's why a lot of the, that's why PAR is being redefined right now is because advancements with LEDs have gotten to the point where we can target in wavelengths and, and study sort of individual wavelengths much better than we used to be able to. They used to have to do most of the fluorescent stuff, or sorry, the UV studies with fluorescence. And they put out a, a fairly wide range, a fairly wide spectral range of light. Um, so it, it's more difficult to figure out sort of exactly the, the dosage and the PPFDs. There we go. So I People are curious. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to mention the, the just before we go too far in, the right. study is called UVB radiation effects on photosynthesis growth and cannabinoid production of two cannabis sativa chemotypes. And the cursory look at the abstract says that terminal meristems of vegetative and reproductive tissues were irradiated for 40 days at a daily dose of 0, 6.7, and 13.4 kilojoules per meter. Uh, no, that's actually not per meter squared. That's um, uh, to the power of minus 2. So I'm actually not sure how to read that in this case. But they aren't even talking about micromoles in the abstract, maybe in the methods or anything. I'll, I'll put it in the comments. Yeah, I, I, yeah, they're talking about the energy of the light, not not the number of photons. I didn't yeah, look at the methods. Say, so. In the results, it says 850 umol per meter. Micromoles, yeah. That's meter per second. PPFD. So PPFD would refer to, in this case, the rest of the light. Um, the PP is photosynthetic photons. So whenever you see PPFD, it's referring to the PAR wavelengths from 400 to 700 nanometers, um, specifically not including the UVB light, which would be below that, which would have a, a photon density, just a PD, um, but it wouldn't have a, it wouldn't be a PPD. So you could call P or yeah, um, PFD, photon density flux. Here's the light tower, 1000 watt UV general light electric HGV per lamp. Curious, Dr. Coco, when you read these studies um, in the methodologies and stuff, when when they are comparing, um, a, it doesn't matter if it doesn't have to be UVB, it doesn't matter the light source. They're comparing a novel, we'll say a novel light source, either the UVA, B, doesn't matter. Right. In their control, are they just showing, they're just doing a plant with just whatever white light LED 
and a UVB, and then the, the control is the one without the UVB? Because I think the control should be whatever the the wattage is on that UV light or whatever light that they're introducing should be also introduced in light in some form, at least in a white light on the other side, because I mean, if it's photosynthetically active at all, but it, it's, yeah, they're not usually light. measuring the photosynthetic response to this light, although okay. UVA light, uh, especially up towards the top of the UVA range, like 390, 395, that's going to be photosynthetic light. I mean, it doesn't, you know, when you get to 400, it doesn't drop off the table and go from like, you know, fully photosynthetic at, at 400 to like not yeah. photosynthetic at all at 399. That's, yeah, so um, that's where my mind was going. So how much, if this shows a benefit, how much is it just because you have extra light on it? Somewhat. By, by the time you get down into UVB, that's not going to be photosynthetic light at all. So, you know, adding or subtracting UVB light, we wouldn't anticipate much of any photosynthetic difference in terms of sort of biomass measurements. What we're looking at there would be plant shape or other kinds of plant responses that are non-photosynthetic in nature and sort of secondary production of cannabinoids, for example, is, is a, a point on this or like plant height or plant breadth or leaf shape or other things like that can be affected by light that's outside of the photosynthetic range. That's what sort of P-bar is, you know, plant biologically active radiation. It's not necessarily contributing to photosynthesis, but it is sort of having some kind of impact on the plant. And you say that's say, a, oh, sorry. I just want to say oh, a lot of people, um, you know, have alleged that because uh, cannabinoids didn't develop for us, right? Like that's a really important thing to get out of the, you know, out of the way uh, that perhaps they were sort of like a blade of armor, essentially. And perhaps yeah. other trichome, other, well, not just the trichomes, perhaps other compounds too, were basically just sun protection, or at least that was one of the major effects that it could have had. So, yeah. you know. Like guy actually, in, in direct relation to that asks, are cannabinoids and terpenes a defense mechanism? Let me just quickly For say sure. that that study on looked at two chemovars too. So that's a, a problem with that study as well. You know, you can't just you're only doing two I different think. two different plants. It's not really uh you know. So well, and they well, did it could, isolate it could, for uh, UVB. It was I just looked at it and it's a thousand watt vapor bulb. Like Spartan was saying, that's a novel light source. It's got UVB, but it's also got a shit ton of other things within there. So they're hoping that the UVB was the one thing that they're isolating. There's exactly. not enough variables controlled, not enough isolation happening. So you can't even say that the results in there are due to uvb it's due to that light it's due to the conditions yeah. that they provided but it's sure. not necessarily just uvb like spartan said earlier uvb is not what makes nature special everything is what makes nature special the sun the weather the mm -hmm. swings and the temperature the wind it's it's different than an indoor environment yeah so, i would say the same thing about um Tom's point about the the altitude right like altitude changes a lot more than just the concentration of uvb Mm -hmm. changes the concentration I, of, of you know the density of the air which I oxygen think, yeah you know is some impact there as well so yeah i also just want to say that um you know to to tao's point um you know sure like maybe that's true for like being very specific on the two chemovars or whatever but you know if it's a gen if it was a generalizable enough effect this would this could be like you know uh, you know primary you know, I'm, I'm, that's not the right word I'm looking for, but basically preliminary, not primary. It can be preliminary, and then you can expand on it later. Um, there's nothing wrong inherently as long as you're upfront about that kind of thing. My question um, is, why is it not replicating? And I think the reason is because it's not the UVB that was successful in that study. It was that light bulb that was successful in that study because all these other studies that look at UVB are seeing what Doc is pointing out. 
nets if you just isolate UVB to the point and you give it to the plants that it might actually have detrimental effects. And it's not like they're not doing ranges. They're doing certain amounts of time. They're doing short times, long times, heavy amounts, small amounts. They're trying pretty much everything and it just hasn't been able to replicate. And in my experience, good science does replicate when you have a, a finding. Not just your opinion. <laughs> in my experience, I, sh I should say, but I, I guess like everybody's experience should be that way. If you science, it should replicate across all labs, all people. But unfortunately that's not the case anymore. And it's not even the standard in most science. A lot of times it's not necessarily replicated before it's published. It's like publish or perish and they rush stuff out in these early releases and uh, initial findings and things like that. It well, it's supposed to be, I mean, doctor, you can, uh, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you publish it and then other people replicate it. It's not like exactly. you wait before the publishing and replicate it. So like right. somebody, somebody could publish it and yeah. Anyways. Yeah. That's literally pedantic. what reliability means in, in a scientific context is can somebody else follow my methods and generate the same results? And so when we publish methodology in that the goal is to provide enough information that another researcher could duplicate this and measure the same results that we measured when our experiment was done. And, you know, in different sciences, let me just say reliability and that repeatability is, is much sort of stricter in like chemistry than it is in biology. Um, but there are certain things that you want to reliably see every time you set up the experiment. And exactly right, Matthew, like you publish your results and your methods and then other people are supposed to sort of demonstrate whether that's reliable or not. I mean, the, the situation that's going on right now with, with nuclear fusion um, on this exact topic where they've done it, they've proven that they've done it and they can't do it again, is, is sort of a, a fascinating thing unfolding in the scientific world right now on this exact topic. Anyone who's interested in this should look up the shown with an umlaut over the O. Um, debacle. There was a really big problem with a guy who said, I got these sweet organic semiconductors. And uh, he worked in an engineering for a firm and he got all of these people. It's kind of th a Theranos style scam. Um, you know, that maybe that's harsh wording, but basically, yeah, if you're, if you're interested in how uh, different the different aspects of the scientific community, like physicists, for example, and engineers look at this stuff, you know, like you can't just be like, oh, I got this magic new technique and, you know, like our smartphones wouldn't work if <laughs> or our computers wouldn't work if the model didn't really represent reality, at least to a pretty good degree. So um, that's why it's really important. And actually coming up with the, there's some people who are thinking, well, should we inherently trust other researchers if, you know, people are prone to error, whether it's, you know, intentional or not. And, um, you know, a lot of people came away with it saying that uh, we have to, you know, kind of give a benefit of the doubt, you know, until something gets not replicated or whatever. But to, and to me, my, my, out, my outlook is that, uh, you know, just keep that in the back of your head, you know, when it comes to research and that kind of a thing. There could be something that's just not adding up um, or it could be really good. But um, that's why you can't just take research as dogma, right? So. It's a great resource when it's done well. I just think that unfortunately there's some outside biases sometimes with funding and other things like people just not doing the replications or you know even trying to like it gets published, people get really excited about a finding and they want to put that out there. But especially if it confirms your own bias. Well, and kind of like with going back to the UVB topic, it's like I put a light up there, I'm doing something, it's got to be making it better. Like in the grower's mind, that's 
So like the plants that are underneath it, you're going to think that they're doing better, even if they're not. And you might think that they're special because they were the one that was underneath the light, even if they're not, unless you lab test each plant and see like from directly under the light to all the way out and you ran the same clone. I think that would be a good way to see like, okay, the one directly under the light had the highest cannabinoids or highest terpenes or whatever it is. And um, as a, we kind of glazed over uh, Georgia grow guys, I think everybody was kind of saying yes, but his question was, are cannabinoids and terpenes a defense mechanism? I mean, just put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, they are in multiple ways is that question. Yes. Right. So like volatile compounds can be uh, an alarm to other organisms, like for example, insects that might come in and, and check out and see if there's some uh, distress, you know, some sort of aphid or something they could parasitize or eat or something like that. They could be directly toxic to certain things. The glue adhesive can uh, kill, you know, obviously these are my own experiences with like, you know, pests and things like that. You know, obviously there's those direct effects. There's the effects of the UV that we were mentioning earlier. Um, you know, and also I think I, I'm actually not sure now that I say it. Um, but I think the, the, the female flower being so trichomous and, and sticky definitely helps with the retrieval of the pollen as well. Um, though I think that was contentious maybe. So I want to just put that caveat in there in case I'm wrong. Don't take me, uh, don't quote me on that one. How about but, as a pheromone effect, almost like a pheromone effect to attract uh, a predator? Has is, is that ever been kind of uh, investigated? Oh yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, with cannabis, like there's not a lot of infrastructural you know, research on, on specific cases like that, but certainly true for other plants. And I can't imagine that it's not true. Is it pine, pine one where they like combine, I think it's alpha pinene and beta pinene to make like a, a different uh, substance that is a strong pest resistance. Um, turpentine is the word that I was looking for. It can produce when it's being attacked. So, I mean, it does happen. And I, one of the things when I first initially started researching terpenes that I found was if like, say plant A over here is getting attacked by a bunch of aphids or something, it, the terpenes that it's volatizing off can potentially be detected by the other plants across the field. And then they might start producing more resin or something that could be a defensive compound. So that's one of the theories that's going around is that the plants are able to communicate through their volatile off-gassing to each other. I know that if they're sharing a root zone, there's like the fungi communicating. We've seen that with trees and a lot more discoveries going on with that. And somebody's talking about how microbes kind of run everything in the chat, which is kind of interesting, but more and more <laughs> we're finding that like in psychology, even there's a thing that they're studying right now between the brain gut connection. It's like one of the fastest, oh, yeah. quickest yeah. Uh, links in our body is directly from your gut, directly to your brain. And there's a shit ton of microbes in your gut and uh, lots of really interesting research going on around that. But to keep it on the cannabis side of things, we did have a follow-up question that's also kind of terpene related. Um, that's actually going to spin off into a not so terpene topic that uh, shout out to Child Education. They posted about this earlier, talking about what terpenes make grapes. And Cade Armstrong said, are grape terps hard to find? Question mark. I've never personally had weed that smelled like grape or seen anything grape in dispensaries. And um, so to Kate, I would answer that as it just depends on what strains or cultivars you're looking into. I think anything purple punch, uh, grape ape, uh, grape soda, all those lines tend to have lots of grapiness, but it's not coming from a terpene. So if you're looking at it like a terpene test, you're probably not going to see like something like citrus comes from like a line wool and there's a little bit of citrus in grapes. There's also, or not, not, not comes from line wool, <laughs> citrus uh, comes from limonene. 
And so there's limonene in grapes, but there's also limonene in cannabis, but that's not what's going to make it smell like that really sweet artificial grapey flavor. In my opinion, that comes from well, the methyl anthranolate. That yeah, that's a great point right there, Jack. It's like, we have to first agree, what grape are we talking about? Are we talking about an actual grape? Or are we talking about that candy grape fucking flavor? Because those are two very different flavors. Yeah. And if you Google, like, uh, I, I think it's kind of silly to write it this way, but I've seen some really good infographics. If you type in like grape ingredients or strawberry ingredients, it lists like everything from the acids and the terpenes and everything. And you can go through there and I might actually pull up on my share screen real quick because I did what I call the grape smell rabbit hole on my Instagram page, where I kind of just walked through how I um, went through finding out that the methyl anthranolate is actually what most people I think are thinking of when they smell grape and it doesn't even come from the grapes that you would find in the supermarket. It's like the artificial grape flavoring, or if you have like grape jelly, which comes from a Concord grape, the purple grapes, which are not typically uh, for eating. They're more jellies or wines or concentrated for like uh, grape Kool-Aid or uh, any other grape flavoring. So I'm going to go ahead and share screen here and pull this up real quick. Share screen, share. I think this it's the grape jelly thing that gets everybody thinking that that, that flavor is grape. Yeah, like a Welch's maybe. So I just titled this grape smell yeah. rabbit hole. If anybody doesn't know, I've got pineapple smell, all these little safe stories. Like your stories only last 24 hours, but you can go back and save them. So I have garlic, banana, uh, cherry, strawberry, pineapple, and then we'll go into the grape smell. And we click on this and hopefully it'll load up here. I'm gonna go full screen and let's see, it should just flip on through. So if you just Google artificial grape smell, it's talking about like something that I also smell in my plant rotten flesh, but then it also pops up uh, right here. Uh, methyl anthranolate is what it comes out to. And it's actually a bird repellent. It's found in Lang Langs. It's naturally found in a bunch of grapes. So it's not like actually artificial, but it's used in like artificial candies and things like that. And this is a paper that shows the top 10 camp, uh, compounds in cannabis that are smelled by drug dogs through a bag. And you see right here, methyl anthranolate is actually in just past the top 10. I think like at 12, they say, here's some more highly odorous compounds that came through, nonanol, decanol, cymene, uh, but methyl anthranolate was in there. And this is a paper that specifically looked at cannabis. So it was kind of like my ability to at least verify, okay, this is producing cannabis and it's been found in a study. So that grape smell that we're smelling, that we're recognizing from like the grape jelly, uh, definitely comes from methyl anthranolate is my strongest suspicion. I haven't actually sent anything out to get lab tested, but this is the classification, which is an ester, not a terpene. So if you look at terpene tests, you might be a little bit confused as to why you're not seeing this. And most places don't even post their terpenes, so I'm not expecting them to start posting esters anytime soon. But uh, yeah, this is just a little quick kind of run through of my thought process and how we went through and figured out, uh, at least in my opinion, what I think is leading to that smell because like spartan said if you're eating table grapes like a, a green grape or a red grape it's going to taste completely different or the cotton candy grapes those are like princess crossed something else people think that that's Super artificial sweet. Yeah. that was a natural cross they took some like alabama strain and crossed it to a strain called princess and they did a huge hunt and they found them and that same group actually has like a mango tasting grape now and a few different grapes that they found within just you know hunting huge hunts of interesting crosses nice that's exciting stuff. I love that shit. If you take those those uh, cotton candy grapes and you throw them in the freezer, oh, that's so good. Such a nice treat. I want I'm going to have to try that because I get those quite often here. 
Yeah, yeah, throw them in the freezer, man. Eat them, eat them frozen. They're so good. I like dog, to do that too. Awesome honestly. dog treats too. Dogs love them too. They're great when it's a hot day in Southern California. I've even seen people like use those as like instead of ice in a wine, they'll take frozen yeah. grapes and then throw it in there, and you can kind of like eat them, get you a little boozy as you're going, and it's nice and refreshing yeah. on a hot day, like you're mentioning. Yeah, definitely uh, a, a nice little addition. Better than a little umbrella, as far as I'm concerned. Just a, I guess, touch up note on the grape terps hard being hard to find. Uh, I think a lot of that goes back to purple Urkel, spelled U-R-K-E-L, like Steve Urkel. Everyone spells it U-R-K-L-E. It's named after Steve Urkel, so spell it right. Like, you know, it's purple Urkel. Somebody was uh, yelling at me in chat or in the comments the other day saying, uh, Jack, uh, I was saying Jack Herrera, but it's Jack Herrer, you know, Herrer like terror. So that's what he would always say. And uh, Matthew and I kind of commented that like Porsche and, and so many other names have been mispronounced. Mercedes. If you say Mercedes, then you're just wrong. And it's croissant, not croissant. That scientific wrong. test, the one through seven, <laughs> like dislike to strongly like, it's called uh, a Likert test. But everyone calls it a Likert test because it's spelled L-I-K-E-R-T. Like one of my professors actually studied under Professor Likert. And he's like, this is how you pronounce my name. But everybody still calls it the Likert test because when you look at it and read it, that's how it's how it looks so i've heard it's not dr seuss but dr swace or something like that i don't actually know if that's true but uh i believe it <laughs> It'd be interesting i know that descriptive his linguist would say at, at a certain Geisel. point the community gets to rewrite the rules on this and if everybody thinks that it's pronounced that way then it is pronounced that way absolutely but, yeah. absolutely like goss it's i think gauss but you know goss gun sounds much better than gauss gun wasn't that the thing with like Anyways. the berenstein bears is really like that, the, no that's the mandala effect that's mandala effect. Oh, okay yeah that's the i could have sworn it was spelled this way <laughs> um yeah that's a very interesting i've definitely had that experience a few times <laughs> i don't know if you've but, guys seen the news lately that popped out of michigan but i think this is kind of kind of huge um actually i can share screen i've got the article up but it's pretty uh eye-raising to me and maybe you guys can explain it better but I don't know if you can see this headline, but the Michigan state police are stopping blood testing here in the state for cannabis because they're getting false positives from people using CBD. So the only thing I can assume that they mean by this is there's such a, you know, it's under the limit of THC, but enough to still be picked up in a blood test. So they've actually sent out letters to all the prosecutors and everything and said, don't use blood tests to prove. So it's going to be just impairment here in the state of Michigan. That they yeah. They were saying, initially when i read this i had thought that they weren't able to tell the difference between cbd itself in the blood and thc in the blood but now what i'm thinking is what's more likely happening is so many people are using cbd products that have 0.3 or less uh in in that 0.3 adds up you know so if you're using, or they're CBD using all the time or, or it's they're hot. using this the, yeah the cbd at the gas station they came from china who knows hot you know that could be a lot higher than <laughs> You know, the THC Delta 8 stuff, you know, how is that testing out in blood? You know, because they're just looking for metabolites, I think. I don't even know the testing. I don't want to pretend like I know. What are they testing for in the first place? What is the, the context of doing a blood test for THC or for CBD? The police are using it to show that you had an illegal substance with their eyes, illegal substance in your body. And, for a and DUI. That, and that improves an impairment. That, that, oh, that for a DUI? But that doesn't show intoxication. Just having it in your blood doesn't demonstrate. 
if you don't have a medical card in this state, they don't give a fuck. The only thing that gives okay. you so it's for yeah. There's no recreational use in you. There for- is there is recreational use. They just don't. Okay, give a fuck. so what's the, that's what I started with. Like, what's the what's the context under which they would be searching somebody if it's legal to use it? It's not legal to use it and drive a motor vehicle. But the, you yeah, can't but prove intoxication with a blood test on cannabis, and they've known that which for is the point. Yeah, for sort of a while. And it's not because of CBD. It's because, you know, I could have smoked up yesterday and it would still show up in my blood test. Or ate yeah. edible a month ago. Yeah, I could have smoked exactly. a while ago. Or, or yeah, urine we, test as well. Um, we all know this. They don't care. That's still what the law is. That's still the law that we have. That he's we have right. Spartan's right. They will prosecute in many, many states. If, you're, if you don't have a medical card, the beauty of getting a medical card in so many states is you get that protection because you can say, Hey, I ate an edible two weeks ago. It's still in my blood. So you but can't they, wait, prosecute. But they have racked. Michigan has, has adult use. Yeah, absolutely. It gives they also you have a like really enthusiastic. I think you, the thing is that they have an enthusiastic you, police force is uh, the thing. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I just don't think that this is, is being used very much. I don't think that it's been, I don't think blood tests are used in in any states that I'm aware of for prosecuting um, driving under the influence. I mean, I might be wrong. I don't think I am. It's an option, and I know in Florida, like it's it's blood, breath, or urine for a DUI. So some people opt for the blood because if they are actually drinking, that means you have to go to a hospital, get blood drawn. So time passes, you're actually metabolizing. Yeah, for alcohol, alcohol, exactly. lower, Lower amount. But they don't know if if you're a DUI for alcohol, for cannabis, for meth, for coke, for heroin, or whatever it is. So when they pull you over, they're presuming intoxication if you were driving poorly. And unfortunately, like even my police officer friends will tell me the sobriety tests are actually designed in a way that most sober people will actually fail them. So like a lot of people will refuse that and then try and take one of these breathalyzers, um, which if you're on cannabis, you have no problem. It's But that's why I think Sometimes they're like, well, it smells like weed. We're going to blood test you or something. And I was reading about, aggressive. I was reading about, um, maybe it was Michigan, maybe it was another state, maybe it's a uh, federal government. I'm not sure who, what, when, where, or how, actually, is, I know the how. The how is that they were looking at um, a breathalyzer where they were looking at, um, you know, potentially waiting a period of time. Like they take a reading, which is not going to be accurate, but then they take another reading later and then draw a conclusion based on the change in whatever that reading is. So that would tell you perhaps, but you know, I, I don't know if that's even going to be accurate either. Um, yeah. It just doesn't work in your system the same way as alcohol. And even then some people would say that's sort of a contentious thing. Are you testing people for, um, you know, cough and flu medication because they're feeling a little down in the weather you know, are, you know, uh, we've talked about this before. It says here that the reason they're doing this. The important thing to stress is, is that we all know this, but they don't care. You still can get prosecuted. This is for driving under the influence. They're still doing it. Yeah. Cause they're saying CBD has nothing to do with driving under the influence. In this paragraph that it starts, it's about time. Um, This is a count. Yeah, they say uh, that their method is not sensitive enough to distinguish between THC and CBD. Oh, well, then that's a problem. Huge problem. That's what the the actual issue appears to be. Not that people, they're using CBD 
are testing positive for THC, but just that the test is not distinguishing between THC and CBD. You have to yeah, wonder how they came to that conclusion, though. They had to have tested right. some people and not been able to. Guessing. I think they don't realize that there's THC in CBD products still, probably. And that's yeah, it's like non-alcoholic beer has you know. 0.2 or whatever, you know, in some of them. And hemp is kind of the same, essentially, thing. It's like a non-alcoholic or like a non-THC, but there's still a little bit in there to like in this case in my opinion for like hemp activate the endocannabinoid system or it's like part of nature it wants to be there like even it's really hard to be below 0.3 like there is some 0.0 stuff it's usually extracted and separated but i've seen also like um swiss x cbd i've mentioned him uh, one of the guys to the coca-cola bottling fortune he did some like irradiation of his plants and then he bred those plants that was irradiated and now it produces 0.0 thc no matter where he grows it so he claims so would be like it's possible that the author of that article is wrong, but the author of the article was saying that even if you have zero THC, but you do have CBD in your system, you're going to test positive for THC. Yep. It's, yeah, it's, that's what I initially read and understood is they can't even distinguish between CBD yeah, and THC. They're both just showing up okay. for whatever reason. Their their equipment can't tell in someone's blood the difference between the two. So there must be testing for metabolites because the metabolite of so the precursor, I guess, the precursor of that, they're testing for a precursor molecule that could be one or the other. CBG. CBG yeah, goes to both of them, right? So CBG right. can turn to CBD and CBG can also turn to THC. So I would imagine it has to be something in that chain. Maybe they're not. But I'm totally guessing I'm not a biochemist and this is not my area of expertise, but it's interesting to talk about. I did see that link shared. I think a Sequence shared it on his page. So shout out to him and the Michigan Bros Bro Show, which are coming on in about an hour and 20 minutes. Don't forget to tune in over there. But um, very interesting. You know, you know, Jack, I have a subject maybe we can do in 20 minutes or so when we're at the halfway point. But uh, I had a really good, uh, I had a lot of great feedback on a research report about, and people love to talk about the microbes and cannabis and that kind of stuff, that um, there were endophytes in the cannabis seeds and seedlings. And that was kind of a neat topic. So how's that sound? We even kind of got into similar topic uh, yesterday in the GML show, um, and that was hoplite and viroid being detected in seeds. Like somebody popped a pack of seeds and like four out of 10 or whatever tested positive for H. So, so we know that it can be transferred from a parent to uh, a seed. No, yeah, it wasn't. People I, think think it was that... three. I think it was three, three out of a bunch, three out of like, I don't know how many. Yeah, it's amazing to me that like, sometimes they're the same people who will think on the one hand, if I go with seeds, then I can totally prevent myself from being exposed to like pathogens and other sorts of things. And then at the same time, we'll say, oh, but there's all these great microbes on your seeds, in your seeds or in your plants, you know, and it's like, <laughs> this is the same pathway for both. And so I think this would be really helpful to go over, but um, I don't know if we want to wait or if we want to do it now. Uh, what's the best flow, Jack? I mean, I think right now, since we brought it up and we've got mm -hmm. a little bit of time left until we share the link with the people, sometimes when the guests come in, it do less of Q and A and more of the uh, person showing off their garden and, and nothing wrong with that. I love seeing and highlighting people's gardens, but um, yeah. I think it'd be good to keep uh, talking about giving us something to, to talk about for these next 15 or so. Okay, cool. So the research is called Cannabis Seedlings Inherit Seed Born Bioactive and Antifungal Endophytic uh, Bacilli. Um, here's the abstract. Just want to highlight this part here that they had different 
uh, accessions. This was all uh, growing across Western Canada. Um, so they possess seed inherited bacteria and fungi. So you got things like Painobacillus mobilis, which had the capacity to solubilize mineral phosphate. Um, there are also many fungi from genera that we know as post-harvest moles, like Alternaria, Penicillium, Cladosporium. Um, this is in the way. Uh, Catomium, Aspergillus, big one, big one that people don't consider. Rhizopus and Fusarium, the big F word in uh, cannabis fungi. California uh -huh. considers that Aspergillus. Yeah. I know that's a big one on the list. <laughs> yeah, Aspergillus and Fusarium, both of those. Yeah, and so it was interesting because the bacteria that were in the seed actually antagonized a lot of these uh, fungi that we were also seeing in the um, in the seed. So there, so already before the plant even germinates, there can be this sort of like turf war between the microbes. And yeah, for those who don't know, there are tons of microbes out there that can be you know seed borne and. Um, certainly, this is just one research report. There are certainly others that I've seen where there are, are many other, um, you know, endophytes that either start off, you know, of course, it changes as the plant matures. So your composition in the in the tissues of the plant at seed is different than as a seedling is different than as a little bit older plant is different as a mature plant and as a senescing plant. And of course, some of that is because microbes get in after the fact um you know and that kind of a thing as well so and even on the plant like the same plant at the same like if you were to take a snapshot in time and, and pause that plant if you took a sample from the top of the plant from the middle of the plant from the bottom of the plant they're all going to be different too <clears throat> yeah absolutely and different yeah different parts of the plant right the certainly um if you're if anyone's interested i have a cannabis um evolution and ecology video series i have two of them they're kind of long-winded but they're all itemized out different topics. And one of the things we go through in the very beginning is um, some research on endophytes and microbiome research and that kind of a thing. And they definitely found like floral tissue is different than leaf tissue, is different than stem tissue, is different from root tissue. You know, that kind of intuitively makes sense maybe for somebody who's kind of knowledgeable in this kind of a thing, but it is important to sort of consider. So these are all the different accessions here, um, different strains we got here, different cultivars quite a variety in seed color shape size yeah right that's definitely true I, I love that they um actually took pictures i think that's very neat um good extra work there to be honest um what i liked this diagram too oh that's weird my uh pdf reader just uh resized it for me um so yeah so those for those who don't know so you can have microbes on the seed surface and you can sterilize that somebody had asked me um, after I posted the, the research, like if that's what they did or did they control for that? And certainly they did see how it was on the surface, but those are inside, some of them are inside the actual seat itself. I have a question real quick right now, because as we just talked about that, I do sterilize my seed surface or at least a little bit to my ability. I use hydrogen peroxide. I soak for at least 30 seconds. And then the paper towel I pop them in has hydrogen peroxide water solution. And I popped 15 seeds recently, 13 of them popped perfectly fine. There was like five seeds of one strain, five seeds of another strain, five strains of another strain, only one strain, two of the seeds had a little white fuzzy kind of mold grow on the seedling. And it actually ended up killing them off. And funny enough, I got it from Humboldt, these seeds. And the last seeds I've had do this were also from the Humboldt area. So I'm interested, maybe if you have any, any theory on what it 
would most likely be? Well, I wonder, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, to the intellectually honest answer, I think, is that it could have been something on a seed coat, uh, but it probably was something just kind of in the soil, or I don't know how you germinate the seeds, to be honest. They were already having a white mold while it was in the paper towel that was nitrogen peroxide. So when it sprouted the seed tail, it was covered and none of the other seeds had that issue. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you, certainly, I mean, it sounds gross to say this, but it could have been something on the paper towel potentially, you know, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, they're not sterile medical. Well, I, I soak them in, in hydrogen peroxide with water. The, so the, I, the I, paper I towel. figure that would help. Yeah, because I'm germinating oh, okay. in that paper towel. It's wet with hydrogen peroxide. And so I'm hoping that, they would, and I wear gloves, I wash my hands. I try to make everything as sterile as possible. I pull it out of a fresh paper towel pack that's wrapped in plastic. So and like I said, the other ones, none question, of them had then. it. And the only two that had it were all from the same strain and not to throw them under the bus. I was gifted these seeds. They're uh, from a friend. They were uh, the garlic butter from Humboldt Seed Company, who I'm a huge fan of their work. I'm not trying to like say it was on them, but it just, it's interesting that it was only those two. And even their other strain, like their garlic butter had it, the nutter butter did not have it. So. Yeah, I wonder, it could have been something as an endophyte, potentially, you know, that, that's possible. It was certainly possible. And like we already saw in the abstract, like fusarium, you know, like a reference is a really big problem. And, uh, you know, that could be a problem here. So uh, also interesting to note here. So this pain bacillus mobilis, this uh, mineral, you know, phosphorus solubilizer, it was found in all of the accessions, all of them. And I think it was the only one that was so widespread amongst all of these plants. So that was kind of neat to sort of see. It was one of the bigger takeaways from this study. Um, yeah, here's a little phylogenetic tree of uh, the bacteria for our one or two um, microbiologists who watch us. <laughs> so we have indole acetic acid secretion here. That's a plant hormone. Pectinase activity. So what does pectinase do? Pectinase is an enzyme that breaks down pectin, which is an important part of plant tissues and I think plant cells, if I'm remembering right. And uh, it's a major way that pathogens and also beneficial microbes um, just kind of insert themselves into the plant. And um, like I mentioned on the Future Canvas project uh, a couple of days ago at this point, yeah, um, you know, that's not like, I mean, I I want to say this very delicately, like people have this idea that all of the microbes in the soil, you know, there's this, you know, you can have or or sort of like uh, cultivate diversity, but I feel like that is uh, not necessarily bad, but like that can mean anything. And it's not like saying anything to say diversity. So how many pathogens are you putting into your soil? diversity right how do you even know what you're putting into your soil diversity like it doesn't mean anything it doesn't mean anything it's not being quantified um and good quote unquote good guys and bad guys can you know use this pectinase to get into the plant and maybe you don't want a certain beneficial in there maybe there's another beneficial that works better but if you get one in there first or a few others then the one that you really want to be interacting with your plant you know, is, is, is outcompeted or um, minimized in some degree. So, you know, it's just a, a thing to consider that um, these interactions are not all going to be, you know, happy rainbows and butterflies. Um, hopefully you get less butterflies though, if you get some entomopathogenic fungi in there, 
But yeah, phosphate solubilization, again, the indole acetic acid plant hormone secretion for the microbes and pectinase. Um, so yeah, all these various microbes that were found, these um, bacillus in particular, uh, or rather these bacteria were found to do all kinds of different things. So I think that's kind of, uh, kind of neat, kind of cool. Um, do I have anything more to say about this? Well, here's a really cool look at all of these uh, different microbes being plated uh, and also from the different um, cultivars that they were found. So yeah, they definitely did their, um, their work here. And we also have an example of um, disease pressure metered out with the uh, genotype, which is kind of interesting. I actually didn't look at this diagram um, as close as I thought that I did now that I'm looking at it here. With everything um, they looked at, I'm actually a little surprised they didn't examine hoplite and viroid. Um, a few episodes back, somebody asked, oh, what percent comes from seed and medically fits? I don't know if you pulled it from a link, but he was very like confident that at least 10% of hoplite and viroid came directly from seed. And I'm not sure where you got that number from, but I also there's a to research report that goes oh, that's that I uh, was looking at that in a um, in a uh, laboratory test. And I think it was like seven, maybe to ten percent. Um, I I don't think this is part of that dogma thing we're talking about earlier. Just because you're able to do it in a lab does not in any way, shape, or form necessarily. And also, is if I'm remembering the right, if we're talking about the same thing, that's also quite old research, and um, there's especially with viroids, because we've only, we've only really known about viroids for a very small period of time. I think the first one was really um, yeah, sort of described in, in great detail in like the 70s, right? So like, it's not been a long time. Um, and that doesn't mean that's going to be happening in the field the same way. Because you were able to make it happen in a, in a laboratory setting, you know, so that's just a thing to like bear in mind. But we do know the hoplite viroid is pretty insidious um, and viroids and there's research out there that shows that some viroids are even able to get into fungi and, and move around through like mycorrhizal fungi and pathogenic fungi in some cases, certain ones. So like, you know, scary stuff. I want to ask scary. Aaron, the grower, I know, I think uh, you just got here. So I want to give you a chance to welcome yourself in. And I wanted to ask a question uh, as you do that is, did you get any testing done on any of the cuts that you brought back. I remember, I think you were talking about maybe starting fresh with some new genetic work over there. So uh, welcome in. And I'm just curious, uh, any thoughts on the hoplite and viroid or just other viroids that could be coming with plants? Uh, thanks, Jack. Uh, good to see you guys. Uh, yeah, I'm Aaron the Grower, atgacres.com, atgacres on Instagram. It's good to be back. Uh, yeah, I did test. Um, I tested three strains. Um, two of them were really healthy looking and important to me. And, um, so I, I came back with nothing on those. And then one of them was really ugly and important to me. And it was exhibiting all of the, you know, the traits that you, uh, that were taught to look for, for, for hop latent. And certainly it did have hop latent. So actually today I called like 37 strains out of my mother room. It's very sad to see that post on your Instagram, Aaron, yeah. but, but good on you for doing the research and not screwing over the people like amazing. Like, you know, it's hard work, but like, it's honest work. It's hard and not continuing <laughs> to spread it. Yeah. That's it, man. As I, you know, I just want to, honestly, it's, it's great to be able to, to offer pathogen free clones, but it's also never a guarantee. So I'm just doing everything I can to, uh, to mitigate. And I have, I have dude, I'm, I'm purging the room. I'm, taking the soil outside and bleaching it and like 
Um, I have a whole a whole thing I'm doing. Actually, I started it today. I want to say I just want to sort of like finish up this uh, this little Do report it. here. There's um so they they mentioned here in the research that you know for obvious reasons uh, the role of uh, seeds and dispersal fungal pathogens in cannabis is not really extensively researched. Uh, but they found that in this study, 73.3%, 11 out of the 15 accessions uh, hosted at least one seed-borne fungal isolate. Uh, the observation that 83.3%, 20 out of 24 of these isolates were identified as genera known to be cannabis pathogens for post-harvest molds, which we already got into, is an unlikely coincidence. Seems that it's likely cannabis seeds act as a vector for fungal pathogens to spread and proliferate. And of particular interest, the observation that penicillium, fusarium, phosphorium, alternaria, and aspergillus have been previously identified infecting cannabis flowers, which I have, I bet I have read some of these uh, citations right here. I know, I think I know what they're talking about, some of those research reports. Um, you know, it's just, a, just an interesting thing to consider. So if you are under the false impression that seeds will guarantee you to not have pathogen problems or that you won't have any issues, I'm sorry to say that that's probably inaccurate. And, um, you know, just consider that. It doesn't mean that you're not necessarily doing better for certain threats. It's all about what threat you're modeling, right? But um, ostensibly, you can get bad guys, but also some good guys, too, to fight them uh, already in there. So uh, something to consider for breeders, too, not just the genetics, but also the, the microbiota that you might be able to pass along. Um, that's something I'm very, very excited for, not just in cannabis, but other types of agriculture uh, and crops and pursuits. And with that, I will stop sharing. I'll just uh, make a little note on the end of that. Uh, one of my favorite breeders, Vegan Doja, talks about because he grows in like a probiotic vegan soil that his seeds may likely have some of that good stuff on them. But there's kind of always conjecture and hope and theory, but it seems like this might be at least pointing to that, but it could also be pointing to the negative things that it could also be traveling with. So it just really depends. Everybody's got to get their seeds from somewhere. And I don't think anybody's really grown in a perfectly sterile environment. So I guess you're always going to be at some amount of risk, but it's got to do your best and try and source things uh, the best you can. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, and I don't even necessarily agree. I mean, I think sterility can be very helpful for um, how you're handling your seeds for germination, but at the same time, I wonder if uh, we couldn't get away with, I think we've even talked about on this show, all kinds of things, but like uh, seed coatings. Um, in the past, they were often used for pesticides, but I think that there's a really cool uh, potential for maybe even breeders to like attenuate the bad guys in the seeds, potentially, um, probably by not having the parent have the pathogen in the first place. And maybe like, you know, loading loading them up with the good guys and then having that pass vertically, that would be really cool to see people um, embrace. I see a lot of people soaking their seeds in herb natural, like that purple. I think it's like a purple unsulfured bacteria with, it might be similar to uh, some of the Bokashi Earthwork products. I know Brandon's been relatively quiet over there. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the uh, endophytes and things uh, coming through seeds. And if there's anything that you would suggest, maybe starting your seeds and uh, maybe inoculating them versus going the sterile approach. I go sterile first and then I kind of, they're inoculated with my soil, which has a bunch of microbes. Uh, I haven't seen enough science to know that, uh, you know, what that looks like as far as the endophytes. We know that they're passed along, but I do know this. If you are looking to have a greater 
uh, root mass volume and healthier root biome, things like trichoderma, bacillus subtilis, and then a lot of the species, the same species that you see associated with cannabis, the cannabis microbiome, which are going to be the pseudomonas, the bacillus, the uh, uh, basiomycota, I think it's how it's pronounced. Uh, pardon me. If it, you if mean the basidiomycota? Yes. Thank you for your correction. My uh, grammar in those departments are often lacking. My Latin is not so good. Um, <laughs> and so um, personally for me, I know that trichoderma bacillus subtilis works really, really well for um, outcompeting other types of root pathogens in the soil and then also the metabolites that are being created um, and the organic acids that are created by the specific consortium will also have uh, growth promoting aspects associated with it because we have the things like the sediophores and also things like phosphatase enzymes and um, I think in that research paper was actually talking uh, specifically about some of those enzymes or some of those uh, bacteria that produce that, that phosphatase enzyme that will help with the energy resource as far as being able to solubilize uh, phosphorus around the newly developing roots. So that way it can get the energy it needs, you know, because we know that adenine triphosphate is the main, the main purpose uh, for phosphorus is used as an energy source for biological exchange or like the, we call it the biological exchange currency. So I think looking at, um, I think when we're not, when we're looking specifically at organisms, we're looking at the organism itself, but also what its byproducts are, you know, that are causing that, that beneficial function in the plant. It was interesting you say that Brandon, because just earlier, Matthew was going through that study that was showing that every fucking cannabis plant had a solubilizing phosphorus bacteria on the seed wasn't that yeah i thought and that was very endearing <laughs> i posted just on my story i think uh yesterday about you know i was reading a book one of my microbiology and biochem books it's it says that scientists have a hard time quantifying uh total you know uh you what like what species are most responsible because the majority or pretty much all soil microorganisms produce some type of phosphatase uh, or a, a phosphorus solubilizing enzyme. However, there are species that we know that, that have, you know, that we've done conducted experiments with that show they have um, higher uh, enzyme activity and, but it's usually, it's usually caused, you know, by something like soils that are deficient in that substance to begin with. And so there's kind of a weird give and take where if, if the soil has adequate amounts, you see less production of those metabolites. Um, so it's hard to quantify exactly uh, which ones are going to be um, solely responsible, you know, mainly because we can only you know, identifying be 1% of total, total soil organisms. And they all have similar, you know, metabolites and functions. Well, a lot of them do, depending on their modes of metabolism is really what I've seen. 
Yeah, and like Matthew said in the past, sometimes the good ones aren't always good, and sometimes the bad ones aren't always bad. So it makes it even more complex, considering that it's, they're less than one percent of the soil, which makes it difficult. We have a and most, you know, we when I think about like microorganisms, I think of them in three different type of categories, right? Which is going to be pathogenic, symbiotic, or just mutualistic. And most most things are just mutualist oppor- or you know mutually opportunistic. And so, uh, and they and they always switch. You know, some of these things have different modes of metabolism. And and like if one if an organism can switch modes of metabolism, there's there's no it it, it to me in my mind it I think. Well, if it can switch its mode of metabolism, it can probably also switch the modes in which it's operating or, you know, it's not yeah, always going to be, you know, there's just, it's these, these, these things are so intricate and they work in so many different ways. And it's, these things are, they work in real time and they're always ev- like trying to evolve and replicate and be better. And so, I mean, to me, I, I, I just don't s- I don't see things being like, like the same all the time. There's just too much happening all, all the time in these systems. I have a yeah, little more straightforward just, one for us to I mean, maybe answer some of the chat questions. Uh, Ko- Kojo Jibs, I'm probably mispronouncing that, says, Edgy Palm Grow, hello, a few of my seedlings have met with damping off. Help with preventing this to save the rest of my pack. And Smart Poker followed that up with saying, damping off is Pythium? Question mark. So a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, a big part of that is like not, I mean, just, just sort of generally, I don't know the context, but a lot of times, um, you know, overhydration of the substrate, you know, uh, having more moisture than is kind of needed can, can cause that a lot of times. So traditionally that's usually a, a big problem with people with regards to, um, damping off, um, I mean, that's the big one that comes to my mind off the top of my head, actually. So, so but, the mistake I yeah, usually yeah. see to do along those lines, the mistake I usually see is people starting seeds in clone domes. Don't start your seeds in clone domes. They don't need the, hum- the extra humidity. They don't need like 100% humidity. They get a seed, they get a, a root before they get vegetation. The reason you traditionally use a clone dome is you're trying to root cuttings that have no roots and they have no other way to get moisture. So you've given the providing the moisture in the air, but with seedling, it doesn't need as much. You may have higher humidity than I often work with. I mean, I grow seedlings in a humidity dome when the humidity is really low because seedlings would like to be up at like 65 to 75% and it's going to be 30% if I don't put them in a dome. Oh, um, maybe wintertime would be the only time I danger that. But yeah, I'm always at least 50. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's our geography is speaking for us there. Um, you know, California. I think damping off is usually water (laughs) getting held up against the stem of the plant. Like like Matthew's saying, it's not just sort of being too moist, but it's, it's really sort of having water held up against the stem of the plant. Um, And it usually is some sort of bacterial growth that that gets in there. Isn't that right, Matthew? Is it always the same thing? Is that what you're thinking? 
you know, yeah, like, um, like there's other microbes that I think like damping off. It's like a you're describing like symptoms rather than like right, the actual it's a causal agent. Yeah, I was say, definitely. Couldn't it be just like drowning? We were talking last week about yeah, lack yeah, of oxygen. Definitely. So if you just Absolutely. give it water, 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 it yeah. just has no oxygen ever, and it just yeah. Dies. And that's and if you think too, a lot of times our seeds when we're starting them, we're start starting them in really kind of warm temperatures, and so the oxygen content of our water is going to be a lot lower. So it could just be the the fact that we ran out of uh oxygen in the system and again when we run out of oxygen you oxygen you have these uh microorganisms that will operate in anaerobic conditions and typically the the pathogens are the ones that are operating in those conditions not all the time but uh uh you know the um a large amount of like the root pathogens those are caused uh, and they operate in anaerobic conditions so yeah, not to sound obfuscatory, because I really liked what you were saying, Brandon, about how, you know, you could have a biphasic lifestyle or triphasic lifestyle where, you know, the microbe is, you know, having a, like you said, maybe a opportunistic mutualism with a plant. Um, and then something happens and it decides that, uh, hey, this immune system is kind of weak. I want to grow more. And it does. And, you know, the relationship switches from being mutualistic to parasitic and that can happen sometimes. And also what we were talking about earlier, you know, um, with uh, the hoplatin viroid transmission, vertical transmission, um, also horizontal transmission is very, very high. Um, but I guess the point I wanted to point out is that like, you know, there's a selection pressure going on. And I'm reminded that um, since we were on the topic of seed endophytes and things like that, you know, um, if you're a, well, I mean, whether you're a pathogen or not, if you're a microbe and you associate with plants as a big part of your, you know, life cycle, um, and you're, and especially if you're a pathogen, if you're able to be in the plant and then get into the seeds of the plant, like, boom, like you've just solved a big problem that a lot of uh, pathogens, you know, have to kind of travel to their plant in some way, shape or form. Um, but uh, there's a selection pressure for that as well. And so, some strains may be less uh, able to do that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is with hoplite environment in particular, like who knows, like it could be that, um, you know, because viruses and viroids, they, t you know, they replicate so much. So they oftentimes they mutate very, um, very, very rapidly. So who's to say that um, we might not get strains of hoplite and viroid that are somehow more infectious, that are able to pass through the seed more, more commonly? Um, you know, I don't know the answer. That is rhetorical. But like that kind of thing can happen. And so just because it's a low percentage in a laboratory setting, I just don't want to make it sound like um, it will always stay that way or that it can't possibly be, I mean, like I was alluding to, it could be different in the field, perhaps lower, but you know, if it's 1%, you know, but they are very successful, then it's possible those traits will be passed on. And then, you know, viroids are funny things, um, because they don't code genes, but still they do mutate and yeah. So 
another scary thing to consider. <laughs> Ojo Jibs follows up and says, appreciate the tips and advice. Thank you. And I just wanted to follow up with a little bit extra, which is I see a lot of people have very good results with not having damping off using the rapid rooters or the root riot cubes or a jiffy pellet to start. Because when you do that, you basically saturate whatever medium you're using and it gets water and oxygen at a good ratio all the way through it. The seed typically will sprout, grow up a little bit, and then you can transplant it into what I recommend would be a solo cup just to get it going a little bit and then go into a larger pot. If you're in a larger pot straight off, part of your problem might just be it's so wet to begin with that uh, you know it, it's not going to dry out quick enough and have that good process of you know yep. getting water and then drying out, getting water and drying out. In a huge pot, it might just sit in that dampness and not ever really have a enough oxygen or good soil conditions to have a strong early start so that's i just want to last little bit of mention that there's products out there that are like seed coating for uh beneficial microbes to give the plants healthy starts if you could uh that might help if and it's an option yeah. like osmocote right isn't that one right. of them but there's yeah there's definitely yeah. lots of in in the farm or like big ag industry there's a few different seed coating supplies and, and products out there that are pretty widely used. Some of them do have microbes. Some of them are pesticides, like Matthew mentioned. Uh, some of them are nutritive, like nutrient coating. So it all really just depends what angle you're trying to come at it with. Funny enough, I think most ag seeds are okay with like between 70 and 90% germination. Um, so like a lot of people in cannabis because they're paying $10 a seed or whatever, they want to get that hundred percent right. and losing one or two, they feel like shit. But when you're buying like a thousand seeds and you're just planting a row or whatever, if, if you don't come up, it's like, you've got a, the whole rest of the row. And often they plant several seeds in the same hole just to ensure that one will come up. So it's a interesting when you get to that, like egg scale and massive planting versus a home grow scale where you're starting in paper towels or solo cups or jiffy pellets or something like that. That's a very good point to make. That context is very different. I just want to give a note to the person who's trying to jump in right now. If you're listening, it just says iPhone. And there's been like a notorious flasher going around the cannabis community that exposes themselves. So unless you join with a name that I recognize, I'm not going to let you in. I'm sorry. Um, I don't see Blindcat420 in the chat. That'd be the only person that I'd let iPhone in as because his uh, conditions, but I'm not going to risk that happening. So sorry. Thanks, Jack, for being a pillar of the community who actually knows that this is the case. I mean, good good you know security not you know notwithstanding but i had no idea that that was going on they were claiming so. to be one of our panelists unfortunately on another show oh my goodness they, they said they were tau <laughs> and that's oh. how we got them in and they were trusted <laughs> wait are we sure oh, it wasn't no. tau? We're yeah sure. i don't <laughs> yeah, are we <laughs> sure it wasn't tau come on tau or the, or the rock <laughs> oh tau strikes me like the guy that likes to get naked and run around i don't know why I do, but I would never impose that on someone not aware of participating. He, he waits for the consent. Tao is all yeah, about right. consensual. That's honestly, I mean, better than most people. Yeah, no. He's secretly Vin Diesel, so he's got a lot of, uh, you know, big uh, movie right, to lose. Rock. So he's got to not make sure he's flashing out there on in the public. You know, and, people uh, look at you really strange when you're asking for consent for that, too. They're like, wait, what are you going to do? I guess is this a Louis C.K. bit or something. I don't know what the hell's going on. The, the worst thing of it all, I guess, uh, Tao was saying, I, I wasn't there, thankfully I didn't see it, but Tao was saying, like, it, it was funny because they were saying it was Tao and then it ended up being, like, a really uh, little one. So it was, like, even more embarrassing that, you know, not only is it some guy flashing, 
and exposing himself using your name, but like he's uh, you know, not packing any heat, which makes it even more embarrassing. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. I swear, I step away from the show for two minutes. And you guys this is the first time it was like 180 Aaron, It was I like 30 minutes way. since I last heard your voice. <laughs> uh, I'm still here, buddy. I'd say like 15, but okay. to be fair, I, I do try to make laundry. the show not go to that <laughs> I see. I see a lot of other shows that as a lot of gentlemen in the chat room, it can get into like locker room talk and I don't want to turn away our crowd. So I will uh, get back on the cannabis flow of things and ask Spartan, <laughs> what are you smoking on? And Doc, uh, are you going to be hanging with us for the next 45 or do you got to get yeah, how are you earlier? You I'm good happen. so far. I might have to cut out here though pretty soon, probably in the next 10 minutes or so, but I'll stick around as long as I can. I didn't want to hold you captive or anything no, on Zoom. Sometimes people are like checking. on mute, like, oh, I got to go and I don't want to cut off the conversation. So yeah, uh, I know that feeling. And he always has such great things to say. So it's very helpful. We wouldn't want yeah, to. I haven't enjoyed this episode. I enjoy most of our episodes, guys. I think <laughs> we, we have fun on our show. So. I have a good time. I try to at least the best I can. And uh, we can't please everybody, but most people seem to say great show. Can't wait for next week. And, uh, you know, I appreciate all the chatters asking great questions and keeping us engaged and giving us topics because it is hard to come up with a new topic every week and not just hit the same ones over and over and over. Like talk about popping seeds, taking clones, veg, flower, harvest, dry and cure. We've talked about all those things a lot, but I still love to talk about them. You know, it's there's a nuance still in there that we haven't touched on. Maybe somebody who wasn't talking as much will share something that came to their mind or they learned something new. And uh, it's always worth revisiting and uh, touching on the basics to get the more expert opinion, I guess, because that does come out of the very foundation well, of growing. I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize as growers, as they're coming up as growers, I mean, especially, is that I don't know about everybody else, but I think it's pretty common. And it was for me to always want to try some new things or some new grow styles until I kind of came into my own and figured out the style that I really liked and, uh, and all that happy horse shit. So it's really, it's really easy. I mean, to, to, to get into the mindset of, you know, I, I bought a new light and I got the best yield I ever got, but was it the light? Because every day you're becoming a better grower too. You have to account for your growing skills as, you know, as part of that factor too. So keep growing with that light. And is your yield always improving or, you know what I mean? A lot of people will will give the credit to physical things like a light or a fan or a controller or whatever the hell it is and not give themselves enough credit as growers. It's like, you know what? I challenge you to go back to the very first way you grow that you shit on now and say it's the terrible way to grow. And now with your knowledge, go back and try it again and you might have way better results. So for me in growing, the thing that keeps it fresh and fun for me is to try things over and over or different things, you know, like I'll try DWC or I'll try revisit it. Yeah. Yeah. Just try it and see what, yeah what it's like now if, if there's if anything's changed or is better and conversely the biggest thing like that spartan i totally agree with you in terms of people trying to give credit to the wrong thing or, or sort of evaluating the wrong thing as as you know responsible for this and not giving themselves enough credit a lot of times but the thing that i think at least that i see them doing that with the most is some new supplement that, that they're using and it's like this agreed this new supplement, man, now my, my harvest is like so much better than it used to be. But it's like, oh man, I have so profound doubts that that supplement did anything beneficial for them, like whatsoever. Right. But they're, they're convinced. Very much like what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, uh, with regards to research and replication, like, yeah, people like, that's exactly where my mind goes. It's like, oh, I did this new thing. You know, I changed this variable. And I had this effect. And it's like, that's why you have a control because maybe they would have gone 
amazing because of your own great cultivation ability, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Or there was yeah. a, first the environmental such a way that we're perfect for that grow. Yeah. Or it's just exactly that's a big one, Spartan. I think like this season, like if you do several grows during the year and, and you don't take into enough account, like temperature was a lot easier for me in the winter, spring when it wasn't like the summer, fall, or whatever happens to be like that. You can definitely misattribute sort of like what caused the better harvest or what led to better or worse plants or, you know, a lot of things like that. I, I definitely agree. A lot yeah, changes like, from grow to grow that we don't keep sort of top of our mind. Summer sucks. I, I, you know, I was thinking about how like, you know, it would be amazing to be like, you know, in Michigan or something and conducting like a pest trial or, a, or, or whatever. And like, oh, I wonder if we get less pests and like, in the winter is probably different than in the springtime you know that's like exactly. obvious yeah exactly and if you're growing indoors i think you kind of lose track of some of that stuff as as much you, you don't think it sort of matters as much or at least it it would be easier i mean if you had a garden outside and you were like shoveling away the snow to get to your plants i think you'd be aware that you know climate different times <laughs> of the year are going to have a big impact on on things but yeah, it, it affects us indoors, even though it's not sort of, you know, out in the elements. Yeah, yeah the indoor helps, have but... A, I have my yeah. best indoor grows in the in the fall and wintertime when it's cooler outside and I'm not having Absolutely. Yeah. You're not fighting it. Not fighting it. Um, I, I, I have a recommendation in this sense, too. Um, home growers, if you're, like, looking for IPM strategies for your indoor grow, scout outside your house and look at, you know... Agreed plants that you know that are like flowering plants outside your house yeah because they have to it's not um, spontaneous generation right um they have to come from somewhere and uh yeah even though you're protected indoors there's going to be less of that ambient pressure around your little castle um and like you say aaron very adroitly uh you know checking out the plants a lot of these pests of cannabis they're not specific to cannabis and a lot of them are going to be eating all kinds of other plants. And so it's, it's fairly possible that like white flies and thrips and um, rice root aphid, especially spider mites, you know, all our fungus gnats, even all good examples, broad mites uh, that will be, you know, potentially right outside your doorstep and you don't even know it. So that's a good point. I wanted to go back to kind of what Spartan was saying, but kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum where maybe a new grower thought like a method sucked. Uh, and then they can go back and have success with it as that new grower. If you're having problems, maybe think, Hey, it could be me. I could be doing something wrong. Cause I saw on Twitter, somebody blaming, uh, I'm not going to even name the breeder, but there was a Herm genetic that came from, in my opinion, a reputable breeder, somebody that I've seen a lot of really good gear for come from. But this person said, look at this plant stress-free and it hermed on me. It had purple streaks up and down the stalks and it had super red petioles. So I was like, hey, just in my opinion, I'm not trying to be an asshole, but I don't think you can say that this is a stress-free plant when I can see there's purpling stalks and red petioles all over the plant. And maybe that's like a little bit cagey to challenge the fact that, oh, your plant might have hermed because you did something to it. But I think I like to blame myself because then you can take personal accountability and like go through the steps in the chain. Like, did it get too hot? Did it get too cold? Did I give it too much nutrients? Was it, you know, there's a million things that can make a plant herm. Uh, you know, root binding and many, many other things can cause it. But Brandon, what was your uh, 
I know we've talked about red stems a lot in the past or purple stems and things like that. And some people like to say, oh, it's genetic, but you had mentioned you've been able to cure every single one. Definitely. It is definitely not genetic. I have never had a plant that I have come across yet that genetically just produces red stalks. So this is what I've seen and it's not anecdotal. None of this is. It's all based off of, off of hard facts, years of data collection. Years of anecdotal data collection? No, no. It's, I said it's not anecdotal. It's all. I guess what he's saying it's is. It's your observations. <laughs> technically, right? it would be anecdotal because it's coming just from your thing. But I think you're feeling like it's got more of a, a standpoint because you've seen it across tons of strains over tons of years. But that's well, I'm, I'm, I'm collecting. The, I'm collecting. The plural data of data is not anecdotal. You, you know, just saying. Uh, well, I'm collecting like real data analytics, leaf tissue, saturated paste testing and stuff like that. So I know what the nutritional value of the plant is. I, the main factor for that is going to be nutrient imbalance. Usually with the, uh, cation, the, the three major or four major cations in soil, which is sodium, um, calcium, magnesium, and potassium. Now the imbalance is not always caused by the nutrition itself though. That's the kicker, right? Because things like calcium, which are highly dependent on uh, water transpiration and things like VPD. So your environment has a huge factor to play. So if you have a really, really dry in environment and you're not getting enough water, you're not getting calcium uptake, you could start seeing that. And so someone might correlate that to being, oh, that's environment, but it's actually nutrition because the environment is impacting the nutrition of the plant because of the way that it takes up those elements. And so it's, it's what I've always seen is, is always nutritional, but the reason for the nutrition could vary, you know, for why. Yeah. I think it's really important to like, I think to sum that up really nicely is like proximate cause, right? What's the proximate cause? What's the primary What's the thing closest to the thing happening that causes it to be a problem, right? And like you said, it's nutrient, but it's an influence from the environment. I mean, a lot of times I interact with people who say they're the same thing. They'll say that I've seen it be too cold for it to take up certain nutrients. And I'm like, hey, under LEDs, I think you're going to be more successful between like 77 and like 82 degrees. They were in like the low 70s, high 60s. And when they bumped that up, they immediately went from yellow plants to bright green plants because it got them into a range. Their humidity was fine, but the low temperature was basically impacting the plant's ability to uptake anything. I'll give, I'll give everybody a little secret. If, if you go, regardless of whether you're going under HID lights or LEDs, at least in soil, if you run your environment around 86 degrees, 86 to 88 degrees, and then you run your uh, relative humidity around 70 to 72 and your VPDs between about 1 and 1.2 for your you know, veg and for the first few weeks, you're going to have exponentially better results. I guarantee hands down. I have gone over so many different environmental parameters. Uh, are you adding any CO2 Uh, in this circumstance? You can, but I, you know, just the high temp is the only reason I ask. That's like the one thing that that high without CO2 would concern me a little bit, but if you have CO2, I agree with you in veg, they crank. Hot it's not so much because 
because what happens is you get so much CO2 off gas. Now it dissipates, you know, as, as it progresses throughout the day, but your CO2 is building up during the course of the dark period of time because the soil is off gassing. It's acidifying different, you know, and uh, it's mineralizing mineralization of organic matter and so it creates co2 naturally in the room although it's not consistent like some people will run like 1200 all the time dude i'm so i measured this i with my pulse um i i didn't have supplemental co2 and i saw i saw levels between two and three thousand when the lights would come on but three hours later i was down around 400 parts per million and i would get around 200 parts per million by the time the lights went off now that I'm generating CO2, I keep it at 1500 and I've seen the, you know, my nutrient demand go way up. Like you guys were talking about, um, I've been able to crank my lights way higher, all that. Yeah. yeah you will burn through CO2 pretty quickly. It does build up overnight if there's no exhaust out of that space, but the plants will use that up. Like you said, like you're experiencing there, Aaron, within the first couple of hours of the light coming on. And that's that Liebig's law of minimums. That was his limiting factor, at least one of them, because you could see now that when you got the pulse, when it drops to 200, you're re- the plants are struggling. At 400, they're able to operate. 200, they're operating. 150, 150, they shut down. You know, yeah. and I saw, and I saw that at times where they were just totally limp, like they went to sleep, and I had, you know, my lights were at like 400 watts, like barely on, and the light, and they just couldn't take it. It really, it's kind of like uh, you need every little element like if you're on a long boat trip you need citrus otherwise you get scurvy right and if it's a one thing it could fuck over the whole trip and like in this case it's co2 in the grow room like you needed that thing and it just choked out the plants without having it one of the things that people all uh, don't address which i talk about pretty frequently though is the plant's ability to sequester carbon through the roots Cause that's one of the ways that they're going to be able to get carbon. And it's, you know, mostly people just look at the CO2 from the, you know, from the atmosphere, but low weight molecular organic compounds can also be translocated across. Uh, the, do you the know what animals. percentage, do you know what percentage? Uh, that doesn't contribute to photosynthesis. It's not substitutes for, for CO2 from the air. What were what? you saying, Matthew? Sorry. Uh, sorry. I think I, Sorry. Uh, I'm just curious what the, um, do you happen to know? It's okay. This is sort of a, but you read all the, all this research about it. Do you know if, um, to what percentage of the plant tissue can be um, sequestered from the soil or the substrate from the roots? Mm, the percentage, I'm not sure if I've seen analytics on like what percentage of like, is it, uh, do you like, think it's a lot of carbon? It probably well, depends on how much bit. carbon is yeah. in your soil, in your medium, right? Like Brandon has this, should uh, be a this lot. carbon product. I mean, he's adding like liquid carbon to his, you know, his medium. So it could be a totally different thing that we're all experiencing, not using those liquid carbon products. Right, Brandon, don't you have those liquid I mean, carbon products now? Yeah. So the, like, yeah. The, the smart carbon, the humate fertilizer, it's pure carboxylic acid. And then it's, uh, it's reacted. I'm not going to tell you guys what, what the uh, catalyst is, but it's another organic <laughs> compound that has a nitrogen complex in it. And so when you add the uh, carboxylic acid in the catalyst, it actually chelates all of that, uh, the nitrogen in the complex, and then all of the rest of the minerals are chelated to, to form a carbon chelated product that is, is 
essentially the carbon that's in there is going to be able to be available to biology and the plant as well to form like these low weight molecular um, comp uh, carbon complexes. Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to ask. But what are but some I of did, the, yeah. I did some read... of those substances, you know, like, like, um, well, and isn't um, everyone's soil carbon? Like, I mean, isn't even cocoa carbon? Everything that we're putting in is essentially carbon. Like carbon is the most common element. Yeah. So all of the things like your oxalate, citrate, um, there's a, there's a whole list. I'd have to look, look them up oh, in, my, yeah. uh, bio, in my microbiology book. Uh, in my biochem book. Uh, but those compounds are beneficial. And some of them, again, they're, they'll be like, they'll assist with like pulling other elements in. And so they'll, they'll be, it'll be like a mineral nutrient that's attached to carbon. Uh, one of the, there's a research paper out there and I'll, I'll find it in my Dropbox and I'll put it in the chat. It is, it talks about nitrogen usage and the plant's ability to use uh like the amino acids and stuff like that and how they're sequestering those carbon compounds, uh, like peptides, amino acids, and some other uh, compounds. And that's one of the ways that they're able to like get nitrogen as opposed from uh, like ammonium or nitrate source. Fried Piper says their notes say 97% of dry weight can come from the atmosphere. Only 3% comes from soil in a natural setting. Probably depends on some factors. Dr. Coco, you sound plant, like, I would imagine. it sounds like you had an um, uh, interesting question. Well, in terms of powering photosynthesis, I mean, we're talking about sort of different things. That's going to have to come from carbon dioxide from the air. Um, you're not going to be sort of able to substitute for carbon dioxide from the air by giving anything through the roots. Is that supported because how that process well, happens? Right. So I would actually, Dr. George was showing me that that's not entirely true, that some of these uh, carbon compounds can actually be sequestered in the root zone and then be used in that process. In photosynthesis. Yeah. But I'll have, I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll find out for next week. I'll talk to him. I'm fine with doing, I mean, I I think the 97%, 3% in terms of, of dry weight, sounds familiar to me as well um and i think that you know if we're talking about those kinds of ratios yeah i don't have anything to sort of really push back on that but i wouldn't uh, it, it sounded like it came up in the context of not having adequate atmospheric or you know carbon dioxide concentrations in the air and you know the the idea that you would be able to substitute for that by adding anything through the roots i i don't think you can do a substitution like that you you know for having low co2 in the air um that's more what i was trying to say i think that's fair i mean looking at that ratio even if it was 90 10 like a 10 percent is not going to cover 90 if it's not there the 90 needs to be there in saint bernard's observation booth followed up by saying considering that 97 percent is n comma c comma h that is probably pretty close. And I think they're talking about the atmosphere, 97% nitrogen, uh, carbon and hydrogen. So it. Yeah. But bring your, to... bring your data. Okay, so Brandon. There's, there's a, there's a PDF file on Google. It's called large scale sequestration of atmospheric carbon via plant roots and natural and agricultural eco agro systems. Why and how, and it goes and says, 
The soil holds twice as much carbon as does the atmosphere, and most soil carbon is derived from, re from recent photosynthesis that takes carbon into the root structure and furthermore and below ground storage via exudates. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a thing on there, and it gives a little information on uh, photosynthesis and carbon in, um, in the soil. Yeah, it sounds like the plant's taking it from there and putting it in the soil. Well, we and have a lot of atmospheric sequestration. <laughs> and there was an article that came up recently. I can't remember if I shared this with you guys or only with, with some people from Cocoa for Cannabis, but about growing plants completely in the dark um, and, and feeding them essentially photosynthate that they could take up, that they wouldn't do photosynthesis, but they could sort of survive off of photosynthate that was fed to them directly. Um, That's and, interesting. Yo, guys... Yeah, if you Google like growing plants entirely in the dark, I think you'd probably come up with that article. So let's say I didn't ago. Google it and I wanted you to explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I just did you for just as much as I can remember. Like a photosynthesis and you inject it. You're not, you're not feeding them something they that they use in photosynthesis. They... You're feeding them something that they can use instead of having to do photosynthesis. And therefore, you can grow plants entirely in the dark. What is it? I, I think even low levels of light are damaging for plants in that situation if they don't have access to carbon dioxide. Okay, I'll have to look it up, I guess. I hate to interrupt, but did you guys happen to see that um, Dr. White and then Jeff Rolonfels reiterated it, uh, how basically every plant has nitrogen-fixing bacteria in its leaves, and, and cannabis actually has it in the trichomes itself? It's crazy. Yeah, I've seen some research about that, yeah. yeah Although... But they're not in the same um, group. They're a different kind of bacteria, right? They're not um, I asked, rhizobia. He never, he never said what species or what type mm -hmm. of bacteria. I asked in the uh, comments, and no one has, no one has gotten back to me. But I'll put the link of the YouTube presentation. Oh, and please, also, Tao, you linked yeah. something earlier. I couldn't pull up. I wanted to. It was a more modern UV study that you wanted to kind oh, of. Oh, does that link it didn't, not work? It didn't, yeah, I'll put that. The in the, link was broke. In, all the chats as well. I'll find it again. Or what did I just yeah, say? I'd love to. If you I'd just share a screen, see, that'd uh, be yeah. the easiest way, I think, on that one. But the the thing that Jeff Lowenfels was talking about definitely sounds interesting. Um, my understanding previous to that was that trichomes are sort of separate from the plant material for a reason, and that's because the like the question earlier was alluding to are terpenes and cannabinoids defense compounds, and they can be so much so that they can be toxic to the plant. If THC was within the plant tissue, it could actually cause problems to the plant tissue. That's why it's stored in a trichome on the outside of the plant cell, not within the plant cell wall. Yeah, that's what I've read in my um, lookings into like trichomes and their development of different metabolites. It's very, uh, it's very interesting um, when you look at it that way. And that's, I think, pretty common across all plant types because uh, trichomes for those who don't know are you can find them on tomatoes and other plants too so trichomes are pretty common uh, yeah, if you grow tomatoes and you work on a tomato plant you know it for the rest of the day you'll smell like a tomato those trichomes all over do you have a favorite tomato as a kind of offbeat question because a lot of people like to my, grow tomatoes as well my tomatoes are my favorite tomatoes any ones that show up <laughs> no man I, I plant literally this year i planted four tomato plants and i have probably 30 because um I'll, if I get a tomato that I don't think is good enough to eat, or there's something wrong with it, like there's a evidence of a bug crawling in it or it split or something, I'll just throw it. Just throw it into a fucking flower bed or throw it into a fucking whatever. And so this year I've had, I had a whole flower or a whole vegetable bed completely overrun with tomatoes that I planted several years ago. 
And then I had my herb garden is now just sprouting up with tomatoes. And I'm not sure why it took so long for them to come up. So I have tomatoes every day now, like a mass amount of tomatoes. So I don't really care that I, what varieties, but uh, I love a mix to have the big, big fat tomatoes that you can uh, cut up and put on, you know, slice up and then just put some pepper on it and eat them raw. Or, like a beef steak? Yeah, like a beef steak, something like that. Or That's like a full term tomato. And then you've got the smaller like yeah, those are berries? honestly my favorite because those produce forever. <laughs> they just keep producing and they produce a lot and, and um, they're easy to make a lot of different recipes with. Um, easy to deal with. Uh, literally, the sun gold variety is really good. It's a sweeter one. It turns more orange, orangey red than, than red. And then uh, another one that I really like are called the, uh, the midnight snacks. So they have like the purple black tops with the reds will turn start green, turn red. Those are a meaty, meteor uh, tomato that, um, and so and if you let it get really red, it'll actually start to get sweet, but it doesn't get very sweet. Like those sun goals are sweet all the way through. And then I really like Roma tomatoes for making sauces and stuff. They're thicker with less juice. Because all you do to make sauces is boil down tomatoes. It's all you got to just take the skins off and boil the tomatoes down and you make a thick ass sauce. It's easy as shit, but if you use juicy ass tomatoes, it takes a while. <laughs> So you get those get those romas that are thicker and it doesn't take as long to make your sauces. I gotta say I'm a little bit proud of my brother. He finally got into the growing his own food. He's got a tomatoes kind of taking over his backyard. He's growing a bunch of stuff and seeing what works. And he just sent me a video earlier today and he's like, dude, these tomatoes are everywhere. They're like falling over and but they're still growing and producing. Yeah. This is like one of his favorite things to eat. And uh, it's cool to see him get excited about growing his own food, that whole victory garden concept. He's got a nice big backyard, so he's kind of working through little sections of it and growing different food. So I'm always uh, encouraging people to grow whatever they can, you know, whether it's mint That's herbs. Start with one thing. Don't start. People get overwhelmed with gardens. I, I always encourage persons to start with one plant. Start with like a fucking tomato or start with whatever you want, whatever, whatever you like to eat. Start with something you'd like to eat for sure. And then uh, the next year, if you really like that plant, say how much, how many plants do I need to grow a year's worth of that? And how do I store it and make sure that I never have to buy it again? And then when you get good at that, you can move on to another plant and then you just add one at a time. And that way it's not overwhelming. It's a good, good philosophy, even with cannabis, you know, start small, learn it, master. I think most cannabis growers, I know a lot of them, at least they learned to grow plants through growing cannabis, which I think is just so fun and funny, but like, then they can go on to grow tomatoes and then they can go on to grow all these other plants because now they figured out soil or whatever, you know, keeping the plants healthy and all that good stuff. Absolutely. But yeah, I love, I just love the same freeing feeling I get when I started growing my own cannabis and took control of my own medicine. Uh, you get the same feeling when you can produce your own food and you don't feel like you have to go to the store. You can actually make the actual shit you buy at the store. You can make that shit. You Even better, it. dude. Oh, Way better when you go at home. Tomatoes like so cannabis. much better. So oh my much God, better. it's night and day. And uh, do you have any tips for canning for uh, the people out there? Because I know that, or, or not canning just specifically, but for you said long-term storage. Yeah, I mean... I, I'm still, that's my struggling point now. I'm really doing pretty decent at growing the shit, but this matter is canning is different. So my, my tip is um, if you don't know about canning to do it really right, you need to have some kind of a pressure cooker or some way to put some pressure on it. So until I get one of those, I'm doing things like juicing, which you can use a lot of vegetables and, and, and you process a lot of vegetables into a, a small space and, and drink that. Um, also sauces like I, I love doing tomato sauces and uh, I made chili and all I did was just put a bunch of fucking tomatoes in a pot and boil them down and then added my chili spices and some meat and some other vegetables and bam that was the best chili I ever had 
So it's a crazy shit you can do with just grabbing raw vegetables and throwing them in a fucking pot. That's awesome. I love Jillian. As a tip for you, before you get the pressure cooker, my grandparents and great grandparents, they did not have the technology and tools and funds available to, for stuff like pressure cookers. Maybe they could have, but they just used a tall ass kitchen uh, pot, filled it full of water, got Boiler. it boiling nice and hot. Yeah. And certain foods have different canning times. So like tomatoes, I think you will like boil them until you hear like the mason jar makes like a sound. It like literally makes a pop. But some stuff you can actually do shorter and it's just about getting good pressure on there. And you can like check to see if it actually got canned, like the seal and everything, because it won't, uh, it creates that little vacuum. It sucks itself in. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a good piece of advice. I almost wonder what would happen if you canned cannabis, you know, like <laughs> heat and everything. It would almost be like a Malawi well, cob or something like the low oxygen, high heat and pressure. Canning is not the only, I mean, another good way is pickling. That's can be done really easily. And you can pickle other things besides cucumbers. You can pick almost any vegetable and try that. Um, you know, that's fermenting and that's kind of near and dear to a lot of the cannabis farmers' hearts. Um, also drying lots more flavor there too. Yeah, and someone I can't I wouldn't give him credit. Somebody in chat brought it up uh about drying. I can't find it now, but yeah, you can just dry stuff with food dehydrators or just do the traditional way and lay it out in the sun, man. You can dry stuff and then this is really traditional way, like herbs are preserved. And then you can take those and, and crush them or grind them if you want to make a powder out of them. You can even do that. You can really they hang some herbs like cannabis, like how some people do that. I saw one person, they literally tie a string around the stalk. They like put a little nail on their wall and they hang it up upside yeah. down and let it dry. Just like we would, a lot of people would dry their cannabis. I try deal that way. Yeah. A lot of herbs. In Italy. I think uh, fresh herbs like oregano and, and the basil and stuff if you have that and like throw a little bit of it and you like clap it even like in your hand or some mint and stuff and throw that onto like a pasta it just can add so much flavor it's insane oh, yeah. but if you're not keeping it 60 60 bro that shit's whack <laughs> you gotta preserve those terpenes in that basil nope. <laughs> but that's it's Spartan. we've got 15 minutes left which is about the time that i let you uh go refill your tray take care of the dogs and do all that good stuff for michigan bros grow show so any final thoughts and shout outs I just want to shout out the whole cannabis community. And uh, I just think it's, it's, we need to, we need to come together and just be positive. It's really easy to be negative in the community. It uh, crops up here and there. And I see it here and there and I try to ignore it. But I think the best thing is to rather than ignoring things that are negative is to just push positivity. So when you see a negative experience, you see a negative, uh, somebody being negative, approach them out of love don't ignore them and, and and give them the validation they just want to be seen so um hold that mirror up in front of them and show them what they're doing and hopefully everybody will be better for it but other than that, other than that um there is a big uh i don't know how big but there's a uh they're trying to get a lot of act activists in the cannabis scene are trying to do a protest a multi-state protest against multi-state operations that take their money and uh, they uh, lobby for against, I should say, lobby against home growth rights. And uh, it's being spearheaded by a account on Instagram called let's get high with getting, cats. getting high with. Yeah. Surely, getting high with, getting cats. high with cats. Yeah, dude, I just got into that chat. Yeah. Okay. Shout them out too. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if that's something that uh, you guys are interested in, it's coming up soon. I think the first week or second week of September, it's uh, going to actually the whole month of September, but it's going to be spread out depending on state. They're trying to get different activists to hold a rally or a protest in front of whatever the, the, the ideas are out there um, at a MSO's uh, storefront or even at a capital, you know, a government capital building, something like that. So 
if that's something you guys are interested in to, to reach out to that account and you can get involved and I thank you for it. And I just hope everybody keeps growing. That's really what I want. I think that's how we went. Everybody just keep growing. Who gives a fuck what the corporations do? We'll be growing the dank and they can just play around with whatever they're doing. Cheers, Cheers to that, Spartan. Always great seeing you, man. Thank you for coming by. Grow love, Spartan. Who's that, Spartan? I should probably follow Spartan out the door here. So let me go what? ahead and... Final and, thoughts and shout outs. Yeah, make my, my exit as well. Um, shout out for that. You know, I, I love Spartan's sort of political activism. So I'll reiterate that, you know, we got to defend our rights as home growers. Um, they're definitely going to be sort of powerful interests that want to take this away from us. So if we want to continue to, to be in charge of our own medicine and our own production and our own tents and gardens and all that, then, you know, it is worth showing up for some of those things. Um, I'm also going to be involved in an effort a little bit later in September, and we'll talk about this as it gets closer for the last prisoner project um, about people that have been, you know, still serving jail time for cannabis offenses. And we're going to do um sort of fundraiser thing on youtube for that later in september so a um, bunch of ways to sort of get involved support the community be part of of the movement and that everybody you know we're benefiting from that we enjoy being participants in um so to that end i am dr mj coco from cocoforcannabis.com hope you guys visit me there at the website uh drop into the chat room there's always people there that are happy to, to help you out with your plants uh, read our articles Join the Plant Training Grow Challenge, um, which is starting now, and we flip our plants on October 1st. Um, we've got a, a, our first giveaway coming up on September 1st, so there's still time to, to get in and get involved in that. Uh, check out my YouTube channel at Dr. MJ Coco. I'm on IG at Dr. MJ Coco, and I'm here every week on our Growing With My Fellow Growers chat. So Thanks to Jack. Thanks to the rest of the panel. Happy to see you, ATG, whenever you can drop in and grace us with your presence. Thanks for chatters, keeping us interested with all of your questions this week. And um, yeah, I'll see you guys again next week. Peace out, Doc. And I'm definitely Later, Doc. To, uh, I think we're going to do a episode of this show for the Last Prisoner Project as well. Smart Poker just linked it in chat. He's the one who actually made me aware of this. And I do yeah. want to... Uh, you know, be a small part of committing uh, our content to getting over there and, and helping out in any way that we can. Because I do think as somebody who's been in prison for cannabis, uh, it's bullshit. So, yeah. and you know, we need to make sure that everybody has their freedom, especially nonviolent cannabis offenders. So cheers. To as that. a cannabis user, if you can't get motivated about this, I mean, a lot of us came through where we were like one step out of jail or, or did some time in jail or whatever for cannabis stuff. And there's some people that are still in jail for shit that's totally legal now that we're all benefiting off of that we're all enjoying. And they're still sitting behind bars. So let's raise awareness of that. Let's try to right some of these wrongs that aren't just historical, but they're ongoing. And and yeah, as a, as a can part of the cannabis community, I think that that's something that we we certainly can get behind. So, so important Hope to see a lot of you there. And that's great that we'll be participating in that. Thanks again, doc. That is great. Great work. Grow love. Grow love. I mean, honestly, ultimately, I just want to say this, that uh, overturning that aspect is in, in many ways, I think it, it might be foundational for a lot of, you know, getting rid of a lot of the other uh, barriers that we see in you know, the cannabis space and the cannabis community. Having to acknowledge this is probably one of the reasons why uh, things are so slow going because 
you know, it's incredibly hypocritical and you can't really, you can't really politic your way out of it very, very well, I think. So um, the more pressure we put on a pain point, I think um, collectively, I think that could be um, uh, highly useful, highly helpful for us. Absolutely. And I mean, it's ironic because you've got like glass house, uh, glass house farms is this guy, Kyle Kazin, who's a former LA PD drug enforcement division guy who is raiding cannabis grows and is sharing with seed junkie. And, uh, mm. yeah, it reminds me different world. It, it, you see there, Nelson's memes on that shit, dude. <laughs> That's so great. Is that seed person one. He's just been killing them. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, uh, uh, Potent, uh, poetry of plants. Poetry of plants. Oh, poetry of plants. Sorry. Yes, that's what I was talking about. Oh, yep. He's got Going on potent of- that's like one of the best meme accounts I've ever fucking seen. Like, they just come creative, like, rapidly and just high volumes of, of good quality. So like, the very way specific that he, memes. The way that he does that is his whole crew writes memes for him. They'll submit and um, and he'll post the good ones. That's He's, he's talked about it on a podcast before. Okay, that's, oh, that's cool. interesting. I was, I was like, say, it's amazing. I, I do all Jungle, my own. I'm just saying. When Jungle, yeah, well, when Jungle Boys were being raided, um, I think in LA or some, maybe, yep. I think that's where it was. Yeah. I remember there was a video where somebody was saying that um, they're one of the police folks was uh, like, oh, how much is it to grow or whatever? They were like, just asking them questions, like, as they were like, just like handling all of their product. And I just felt like that was like um, just incredibly insulting. And it's like, it's just, uh, do, do you understand where I'm coming from? It's, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was dirty. That was super dirty. Yeah. And they're yeah. probably now trying to get into the space and then compete against probably. them. And yeah. we're, we're probably inspired. Maybe they're related to that Kazen guy who's got Glasshouse Farms, who's another legal business. I just thought jungle boys just opened up in florida which is pretty fucking crazy because they only have x amount of licenses in florida <laughs> they're one of them i guess um so they're not hurting too bad there at jungle Boys. so it's a little hard for me to feel bad about them i will say support small businesses shout out to my wife she works at one called medleaf delivery they supported a local grower out of long beach who had not had a single sale and they were the first ones to pick up their biscotti and their gelato and their skittles and i'm a big fan of both the um, biscotti and the gelato the skittles is decent and not not the best of the three in my opinion but the fact that they were the first group as a small uh, independently owned uh mostly female owned and operated business i think it's cool that i'm able to uh support you know a local group in the legal market if you're gonna have to go through the legal market which not like i have to but it's nice to sample some of the stuff that people are growing locally and see what it's all about so yeah if, if you're gonna go and get some stuff that from there maybe do a little bit of research and try and support somebody who's got some uh good you know morals and uh, causes behind them not just the big corporate people because it could be big tobacco in some cases here in california there's philip morris is uh, actively involved in the market through ultria cannabis here and canada so stuff to look into little nuggets as we are closing out the show we've got about seven minutes left and i'll pass it first to brandon for his final thoughts and shout out oh sorry i was muted uh yep it was always it's always a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll see you guys ne- next week. And uh, remember, Bokashi Earthworks is having a big 20% off the whole site all the way through Labor Day. So if uh, you want to get your microbes, you make fertilizers, any of your amendments, go to BokashiEarthworks.com.
If you don't know which one to pick, I could tell you, start off with that Micro Plus and the Amino N Plus. If you're in an organic soil, that's my recommendations. Uh, I love both those products big time. And uh, his Bokashi is amazing as well. I haven't tried any of the other stuff to be full disclosure and honest, but those are my big three and uh, important parts of my garden. So thank you, Brandon, for joining us. Always a pleasure I'll to have you. See you guys next week. Definitely check out Brandon's website, BokashiEarthworks.com. And next up, another now Oklahoman, former Californian, because that's what Brandon is. And so is Aaron. So cheers to you, Aaron. Thank you so much for showing up. My pleasure, man. I love coming when I can. And yeah, I'm definitely an Okie now. I, I, my inner Florida is coming out and I'm getting more and more country every day. It's, it's pretty wild. Uh, I wanted to talk, I just want to tell everybody that I'm, I'm hunting a wild hemp patch right now. Um, that's literally 12 minutes from my house. If you haven't checked it out on my Instagram, please do. Um, it's really exciting. I'm going to go back in a month. I'm going to harvest a bunch of seeds and I hope to distribute those seeds I think I'm going to categorize them in six different uh, terpene profiles, scent profiles, and we're going to just try and preserve these genetics um, all over the country and world if we can. So um, I'm going to drop that on my website, which is atgacres.com. I'll keep everybody posted on when that's going to happen. Uh, you can follow along on that story at my Instagram, which is atgacres. Um, and I am Aaron, the grower. Uh, thanks for having me. And nice to see you guys. Always awesome seeing you, Aaron. I'm going to show a little bit of that uh, hemp patch here. I've got the share screen going uh, in just a second. And then I'll get the final thoughts and shout outs from Matthew and Tao here in just a second. So Dope. here's a little bit of the wild hemp patch that Aaron has uh, been able to go through and do some collecting. And uh, the story is really awesome. You've kind of told a little bit in the past about how it basically wasn't cared for at all and no uh, water or nutrients or whatever, but you've got these big giant plants that have lots of resistance and might be good breeding stock to work with. Here's another one of those posts to scroll back, I think. That was the first one, yeah. yeah. And this no is this shows dope. the, yeah, the no hope dope. So that's what we're calling it. And uh, this is, these are, we're talking thousands and thousands of plants, patches, like hundreds of patches separated out by miles. It's really incredible. Now, the males don't pollinate the whole state. I asked that before, how does that work? I don't know, man, I don't grow outdoor. <laughs> right, right. But uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm assuming anybody in the question. area. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm assuming anybody in the area. It. And then also hills, like uh, Buddy Kilowatt is really close to a hemp grow that has uh, making seeds. They're literally dumping pollen left and right to make hemp seed. And he grows outdoor and he said he gets very few, if any, seeds. And he's like only a few miles away. So I think it depends on the topography of where you're at. Like if there's like hills, mountains, uh, weird wind flows, lots of rainfall or moisture and humidity. Uh, I don't know how, I think Oklahoma's pretty dry. I could be wrong, but Dude, it's everything. It's dry. It's wet. It's, it depends on the day you get, it's everything, but, but the pollen, this is in like a valley-ish area, but the wind is crazy. I don't know how it wouldn't pollinate anything within a couple of miles, but not heavily. Right. You're going to get a few, like your buddy said. Yeah. And that's probably my thought. Even like grass and stuff, will catch some of it going up that valley and, and the other shit that it hits and sticks on. But, um, with that said, I'm going to pass it next to Matthew Gates. Yeah, I thought we had a pretty heady sort of, um, you know, we talked a lot, a lot about a lot of topics, but we got very uh, sort of scientific, which is pretty cool um, about light, about, you know, the inner workings of the microbiome, seed endophytes, and even talking about interesting things about like nutrient sequestration and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I love it when we're able to do that and I'm able to share some of this research which if you're interested to know more, you can find on my Instagram, which is at sync angel, sync like synchronize. 
You can also find me on Twitter with the same handle where I often repost various researchers that I follow talking about plant pathogens and all kinds of other cool stuff. You can find me for professional inquiries at xenthanol.com. And you can also find me at uh, Patreon. And you can get access to my Discord channel for as little as $1 a month, uh, patreon.com slash xenthanol. And I often find that is a lot easier to give people like, um, you know, sort of quick tidbits of advice and things like that. We have over a hundred um, members at this point. And, uh, you know, I just answered a bunch of questions today, actually. And yeah, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, then um, check me out on Patreon. Uh, it's a lot better than social media direct messaging. Absolutely. And uh, for $1 a month, you might literally save your grow because you can identify a pest earlier or a mold or a mildew or something that you might not have been able to identify yourself that Matthew might be able to help you out with. So uh, I definitely think it's worth that little investment and uh, help support a great person in the community who's shared tons and tons of free content and great IPM knowledge, not only on this show, but on his channel and separate social media accounts and website as well. So thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us. And last and certainly not least, the American one. Hey, Jack, panel, anyone to chat on the American one? Um, yeah, I found uh, a newer study on that, the effects of UVB, which you guys might be interested. I think I got it down to a link that would work. I'm going to put it in chat. Um, yeah, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with 18s on the uh, IG. So if you want to hit me up and uh, check me out, that's where I'll be. And uh, peace out, everyone. It was great when I love... Uh, all the different topics we get into. And yeah, I think it's important that we, uh, we reach out to any prisoners in jail for just cannabis. That's a, that's a sin against humanity. So yeah, I'll end it there. Peace out. Could not agree more. It's a damn shame. And uh, we do need to fight until we get all of them out because they deserve freedom, just like all of us that are using it and enjoying it do. And uh, even if you're not profiting off of, it, off of it, I think just as a user, it's a noble cause. If you can make any little bits of change towards, then it's good to do that. And uh, I guess myself last, I got at Jack Greenstock here on Instagram and Jack underscore Greenstock is my backup account there. That's my name on Twitter as well. And if you want to contact me on a cannabis friendly social media website go to, or app, check out Cannabuzz. And last and certainly not least, if you want to email me, if you're not on any social media, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. And if you really are struggling to contact me, 50strains.com, you can message me through there, or you can get a copy of my book, 50 Strains of Green. Still working on purple. I've got a little bit more time away from work right now that I'm actually able to uh, sit down and do some of the research on that book. Because I, as I've mentioned in the past, want it to be accurate. So I'm going to do as much research as possible and try and just publish it one time and not have to make too many amendments changes to it and uh, show lots of love and respect to all the breeders who've made amazing work but with all that said it's been a great week thank you all for the questions in the chat thank you everybody who listens live and afterwards on youtube as well as the podcast listeners on whatever podcast platform you prefer so with that being said jack greenstock signing out peace and love for dr mj uh, growers love everybody catch you all next week